ManaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to FaceToFaceGames.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Top 8 Magic. I'm Brian David Marshall here with a now semi-regular guest, Magic the Gathering Hall of Famer, Zvi Moshowitz. And Zvi, uh, I think it's kind of interesting. So uh, as we were getting ready to start podcasting, we had the sort of, uh, we had the Democratic presidential debate, like MPL, War of the Split, <laughs> Phase One <laughs> going right. on. No one's sure what the stakes are, but, you know, someone's getting a buy-in to day two. <laughs> and... Uh, you, you think, and some people are going to get cut in the process <laughs> and then lose their livelihoods and maybe make publicity out of the deal, but we're not sure how, we're not sure why, we're not sure how many. I, I, and it's I, all a very confused process that nobody understands. What I, what I did think <laughs> that was interesting from just like the brief interaction we had with that on was sort of how your brain is monogaming at all times, right? Like, and, and that's probably more mono-economist than necessarily gamer but like it was just very interesting to me that you you sort of are like constantly taking in information and and you watch the debate and you hear someone sort of do a bad job and your immediate instinct is i'm gonna short that person (laughs) like i have my predicted positions (laughs) i'm sad that i didn't wait longer to short andrew yang because that price has been absurd the entire time but you know you never know how much more absurd it's going to get before it comes down to earth yeah no i was yeah, I, you watch a candidate, and of course you're trying to evaluate the probability that they're going to win. That's relevant information for you. You're trying to think about, is that a good strategic move for them? Where does this position them? What does this mean about the game that they're trying to play? Do they have the skills necessary to pull this off? And it's sometimes instantly obvious, right? Like, a candidate capable of winning a 20-person field to get nominated for president just never looks like that. So, like... Uh, I, I hesitate to, to, to say that someone will never win the Democratic nomination when they're on stage, but you know, you're watching O'Rourke and like, he's just kind of looking down and not very energetic and like not very enthusiastic about what he's saying. And like, he has a well thought answer. He's asked a question in Spanish. He answers partially in Spanish. He answers partially in English. He doesn't seem to, and, and he seems to be like playing the part of some reasonable person you know, saying reasonable things, but he's saying reasonable things in a very not productive way from what he's trying to do, and that's just what I notice. Uh, Talib said that he watched the presidential debates in 2016 with the sound off because <laughs> all the important information was available and he was less distracted. Wow. Because it doesn't really matter what they say. Like, that, that's not going to inform anybody substantially. It's a matter of what impression people get, and it depends on what you need to know. And, like, the sound off version of what O'Rourke was doing was terrible. And they had a direction of Castro, where it was clear that Castro was just hammering him with details and hammering him and hammering him. And Castro looked energized and like he was pointing stuff out. And like I, my brain was immediately like, God, I want, you know, like he looks so young. I, I have kids now. And I, I think these things. And, he, and O'Rourke, meanwhile, just, you know, just wasn't responding the way somebody who wants to win in a 20 person field responds. I'm like, he's dead. You know, I mean, obviously he could learn. It right. could change. There's plenty of time. Events could alter his trajectory. Yeah, but combined with the way that the campaign's been going so far and how he has failed to capitalize on momentum and the whole thing of where his story about how he decided to run, it's just, this doesn't work. Right. It's not going to be him. 
Let me, let me ask you about that because like, it, it almost feels like when you talk about stuff like this, and it could be almost anything, right? Like you and I will have these discussions all the time and you'll you'll talk about your you know your economic theory for something or your, your game theory for something or your, your just sort of, you know, the, the way you look at the world. It almost feels like, like a scene from The Terminator where you have this gaming pull-down menu overlay over your optic, uh, you know, inputs. Like, how, how, you know, do you ever feel like gaming stuff all the time and thinking about it in that lens, does that ever feel like it gets in the way of processing life in an in immediate, organic way? Like in a... I think I think of, the, think of the Matrix scene. Like, I don't even see the code anymore. I see blonde, <laughs> brunette, redhead. Uh, <laughs> it, no, I don't... I, well, it can, obviously. That's, that's not fair. Yes, it can, because it... You can only think about so many things at once. You can only focus on something at once. It takes you out of the moment. Certainly, if I was trying to evaluate whether or not Beto's, an, you know, Beto's answer on exactly how we should approach immigration policy and what he would do in day one of the White House was good policy, I would have been better off not noticing whether it was a good strategic move to be able to focus more on that question. Uh, at the same time, of course, knowing that he will never be president makes me able not to care. <laughs> <laughs> Discard this input. <laughs> Yeah, and what's relevant, yeah. right? And I think you definitely, I am much more inclined to be the type of person who thinks that you have to play the game legitimately. You have to keep your eye on the object level at all times. And it's very toxic when people don't do that. And so I'm always keeping an eye on the relationship between the two and trying to keep my eye on the object level as much as possible. But I also think that one way to, for, to fail to interact with the object level is... Something I see a lot of people who are very focused on making sure the object level wins out over uh, complicated social games and playing these game-theoretic things against each other is they don't see it. They don't think about it. They process things too much on the object level and therefore don't see what's happening and that these things prevent them from being able to do the thing they need to do. And I think that if we don't model the gaming stuff, we won't be able to engage with how to do things better on a more basic level. And a lot of what I think about and write about when I'm not thinking about games directly is in fact how we, we solve those problems. Cool. Um, speaking of solving problems and ham-handed segues, uh, <laughs> we got to watch the, the Mythic Championship this past weekend. You and, you and I talked a little bit ahead of the Mythic Championship on the last episode. And... Uh, what did you, what did you think watching it all play out? Like, what was your what was your takeaway uh, from the event? I I certainly thought it was, it, it was a super exciting event. I, I was I was pretty blown away by the champion. I have a, a funny story that I guess it's in an interview he did, but uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. But what, what was your takeaway from from the weekend? So the contrast between the Invitational and this event was night and day. Uh, at the Invitational, everything seemed like there were a bunch of people who didn't really know what the event was about, how to approach it strategically, how to play magic on that level. There was a bunch of very nervous people who were making a lot of mistakes, even compared to what we know was their ability to play. The, announce the announcement team seemed to be also very nervous, like blown away by the moment and not knowing how to handle it. And a lot of people were sent in unprepared, who just didn't know how to do the job they were asked to do and weren't given the training or practice. And they were trying duo standard which was just a horrendous mess and right. like was even worse than I 
game theoried it out as a horrendous mess. And they, but now they learned. They they did standard, and standards in a place where I hate the number of planeswalkers, and I hate the <laughs> type of game where it's all about planeswalker development against planeswalker development. But given you're going to do that, it's in an amazing right. place. Do you, do you remember that great game where someone ultimated a planeswalker and then the other person conceded? You mean the point where they cast the Elder Spell, throw a bunch of planeswalkers, put a bunch of counters on Teferi, removed eight counters from Teferi? Yeah, yeah that, I remember that game. That game. That game. <laughs> Wait, which game was that? Seems to remember that happened it was, it, was, it was the one with the Teferi. Oh, oh, that guy with the face. Right, right. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So we did see a lot of that kind of thing. We saw a lot of, in particular, the matches between Kai and Brad at the end, yeah. where. They both knew exactly what they were doing. They were both playing all the right moves, or at least like making judgment calls that I have no right to question. And it seemed like so many of those games involved the, I am going to get out to an advantage, and I'm going to lean on this advantage, turn after turn, creeping, creeping, creeping. But because of cards like Command the Dreadhorde, and the ability to draw running cards, which Kai had already done in amazing fashion previously in the tournament, you can't quit, you can't concede. So you sit there... For so long, as these slow incremental advantages accumulate slightly more and slightly more and slightly more, and it's kind of painful to watch. And I understand, and I know they're having fun, they're teammates, and it's great. And I enjoyed watching the development and thinking about exactly how to progress these strategies. But it's just not not something I'd want to do over and over again. Yeah. Do you do you feel like that that kind of format really? I, I certainly was thinking this watching the event was that a format like this where you talk about that slow kind of grinding you know, just giving yourself a percentage point and a percentage point and a percentage point, that that favors someone like Kai. Isn't that like Kai at his peak? Like, you know, like, oh, Kai top-decked a Morphling to win his Pro Tour. And it's like, yeah, Kai bought himself as many turns. One of the seven Pro Tours, sure. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm saying the one where the one where he top-decked the Morphling. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, you know, I was there. Right, I everyone talks about this idea, like, oh, he top- but you know, he put himself in a position to, like, how many turns can I eke out right. where I will have an opportunity to top-deck the Morphling, it's right? No different. That top-deck would have been great at any point along the way, but he gave himself as much It's as- no different from the Nexus of Fate right. in the final right. of this Invitational, of this tournament, where, like, he did everything he could to give himself every single card to draw that nexus. And then he drew that nexus and he was in position so that if he drew the nexus, the game was over. He knew exactly how to capitalize right. on Matias it. Matias yeah. the, the, the play champion. level at this tournament was so much stronger than it was at the Invitational. The players who made it were all playing great. Well, how much do you think that is due to having the ability to focus on one deck? Right, like to focus on one deck, to focus on that whole sort of organic seventy-five card uh, construction that you're like, okay, and I'll do this, and if I play Esper, I'll do this, and if I play Red, I'll do this, and boy, I really hope I don't play against Simic because Simic Nexus because I don't have a great plan there, but maybe I can cobble together something from this, and like that ability to live with seventy-five cards, not a hundred and twenty cards, and to be able to just you know, focus on that just allows you to uh, play a deck you know super well in uh, and give it as many opportunities for you to display your prowess with it. I'd almost say and be in that mode during the tournament and have that mentality, right? If you're split between an Esper deck and a white deck, then you have to do this incredibly <laughs> jarring thing, right? right? Where every half an hour you have to shift between... I am going to attack, 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 and I am going to not die, not die, not die. <laughs> and these are very, very different mindsets to be in. I think that even matters more to a great player that they have to have both attitudes, and they have to between these attitudes, and they're distracted by the game theoretic questions of what decks do I choose, what strategy, 
what what else is going on and but I, I think one thing to keep in mind is that the, with the MPL, these players are effectively forced to stream with all the decks and learn all the decks and be comfortable with everything. Sure. And in the MPL, just to show, be able to fill their content and not give away what they're playing and, not, and, and for everybody to be uncertain and to learn and just to learn what your opponents are so you learn what things are. And then you have to choose different decks from week to week. And so if you have any chance in the MPL, you have to be unpredictable. If everybody knows that you're going to play mono red, that's terrible. If everybody knows you're going to play one of six decks, or doesn't know what you're going to play at all, that's much better. And yeah, you can prepare in secret, but it's really hard to do. So I think that a lot of things favored this tournament being a better tournament. I think that having sideboards just makes you better. Like you mentioned the full 75. I think that you don't understand a deck until you sideboard with it. Right. You know, until you ask yourself, what exactly do I want to do in each of these matchups and each of these situations? You don't understand. So your 60 guard play gets so much better when you have to sideboard. So when players were just building a 60 or a 75 because the 15 were mastermind. <laughs> like, it's so easy to not actually understand what you're doing, to copy a list and not really grok it. And that becomes much harder. Well, and every, everything just becomes more, much more coin flippy when it's, okay, I'm going to play my Esper deck, and you've chosen your red deck, and this is what that And the coin flips is. are correlated, because often we had situations where, like, Nassif shows up with these two unique decks to the Invitational, and if he wins the coin flip, he's a huge favorite in both matchups. And if he loses the coin flip, he's a large underdog in both matchups. Right, right. And, that, and if the, there's, there's no middle ground. There's no, well, I won one flip and I lost the other, so I'm advantaged in one match but not the other. It's always the same. And then there's a coin flip separately for game three, but the match is already over more than half the time. And you also just had the problem of because of these random factors, you ha- and also because you're forcing a lot of players to play with the same pair of decks you had much less room for innovation you both had less deck variety and you had a lot of players who just objectively were not of the quality that the MPL is being able to spike a few match wins and get reasonably far in the tournament when you watch them on camera and they just weren't playing very well interesting um what so so what do you think of uh so just talking about the MPL, right? I think it was pretty interesting to see, like, you know, there was a lot of conversation about, like, what the fuck is the MPL about, right? Like, I mean, there was a huge conversation, like, what does this even mean? Why are people playing this week to week? And to me, and, and, and I, I certainly was one of those people. I'm not, but, like, seeing Brad kind of get to take this, like, you know, work from home day, <laughs> And, you know, show up after lunch and, you know, work work one to five and then, you know, get his way into the top four, earn his fourth Pro Tour top eight. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, it was it was like, wow, the, the actual like doing well in the MPL to me is like Mythic Championship day zero. They had a very high stakes set of matches that was presented in a way that made it impossible for even me to right. understand the stakes. Right, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, like, I don't think we, we, I don't think we understood how, how, no. how big this was. I showed up in week one to watch top players play and was really frustrated because they did things like, here's deck one, here's deck two, here's who won. We didn't even show you the sideboards or any of the games. 
why did I come to your stream for this? Right. That's what a website is for. And you have sideboards there. And then by several weeks later, you've got great commentators in the booth talking about match after match after match. And I'm just happy to show up and watch great the greatest magic players in the world play each other with decks that they've deeply prepared for, where they clearly care. And I don't understand exactly what's at stake, but that's a, <laughs> that doesn't that's not necessary for me. Like I'll watch the super leagues, right? Where there's nothing at stake, right? Except pride, because pride works. Sure, right? Pride works for me. If anything, like you know, this felt less good in terms of structure than the Super Leagues in that sense, because in the Super Leagues, you have these players taunting each other and talking about their matches right. and, and making it clear the social setting of why it's a big deal. And here I had no context at all, right? right? It's, these players were on average better, of course, because they're the MPL. Uh, but then later on, what we find out, you know, this was the Grand Prix trial, except instead of a Grand Prix, it's a Super Pro Tour. Right. And instead of three buys, it's like four or five buys. It, it's a tremendous advantage. It gets you straight into day two. And also what, you know... It's, a, it's an extension of that Mythic Championship that we didn't realize was there. It just wasn't pitched in a way that yeah. anybody could figure it out. And when they do it again, if it's the same structure, you know, I will understand it. I don't know if other people will understand it. Yeah, I, I would hope that if they, they do it again like that, I, I think split is just like a meaningless term in our magic lexicon. Like, I, I understand that it has some uh, gaming import in other in other areas, but in magic, it just doesn't, it just doesn't mean anything. And I think calling, calling that event Mythic Championship 5 Day Zero or Mythic Championship 5 Super Trial or, yeah, I like or something. I like trials because it connects the player's experience at their local store sure. over many years. Like, Everybody knows going to that Grand Prix trial. Yeah. I did it. Everyone else did it. Yeah. And you're like, I don't even know if I'm going to go to this Grand Prix because it's not even worth it. But if I get myself three buys, right now I'm getting on a plane. Right. Right. Because now I'm super excited because now I've got something worth protecting. Right. And right. And the fact is that if you win your division, you're just so far ahead of the other players in your division, the other seven players at that Mythic Championship. I mean, it's just hugely valuable. It's a huge leg up. And... You should fight for it. Like the players were, they were talking on screen about how the players were super nervous and couldn't sleep and were just spending all of this effort into preparing for this near the end. And I think also the context of having watched that like really informed my appreciation of the tournament. I watched the decks people played in the same format week to week and then the contrast and the sudden shift from there to this tournament. And in particular, like when I looked at the deck list, my first thought was, oh, they're making the classical mistake of thinking about what record they need when choosing the deck that they play. Where in the MPL, they did things like, well, you know, I can't afford to ever lose, slash, I need to win exactly these two matches with this deck and then I can switch, and I'm playing against the best players in the world, so I'm gonna play Mono Red especially. Like a lot of the best players who were winning chose Mono Red, including players like Jensen, where it seemed pretty out of character in, in context to play it. <laughs> But he's like, well, this is, I want, I want this buy. I really want this buy. So I'm going to go get it. Funny story about the mono red deck. Is, yeah. I, I, there's a, an article that, that might be up already, or probably by the time this podcast goes up, will be up about Matias Leverado, where he got back into magic because of Arena. He's an old school Argentinian player, did, did the whole thing, um, but gave up on the game. So, you know, sold off his magic accounts, gave away his cards, and was like, I'm not playing magic anymore. Arena comes along, he starts playing Arena again. He's like, oh, wow, 
you know, I, oh, I like the Simic Nexus deck. I'm going to grind. He gets himself to Mythic, and he's just trying to get himself into that top thousand. And at some point, he falls out. And there's not enough time left for him to get back in with Simic Nexus because the games take so long to play. It's the last day. It's like whatever it is. Yeah, it's like the last day or like whatever, however many days. I, and he basically cashes in all his wild cards to build them on a red deck and like <laughs> just closes the ground with mono red <laughs> to get himself requalified for the event. How sick is that? He's like, I want to play the Simic deck so badly. Help me, Mono Red, you're my only hope. <laughs> I am so desperate to play Necklace of Fate that I will play just fanatical firebrands. Yes. Yes. It's it's an amazing sight to behold how how easily players will sell out the firebrand and the chain wheeler and the frenzy. And I get it, it's a really strong deck. And sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. And there have been times where I just wanted to like throw the computer and stop playing arena because I would face red, Another red four deck, times yeah. again, five times in a row. Especially when I was playing best of one, it was just again, 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 and like, yeah, I have the advantage on this thing, but this is not what I want to do with my day. Right. It's just incredibly frustrating. And so when they got to the the Mythic Championship, where they could afford to lose at least a little bit, and they were facing, you know, the prospect of playing a lot of rounds and facing the active challengers, some of whom were invited for reasons other than being the top Magic players in sure. the world for, you know... And so they think to themselves, okay, I'm going to play a deck that lets me leverage my skill. I'm not just going to give in to, like, the deck that, like, has a slightly better win percentage. And now that suddenly you see only two MPL players bring red, uh, one of whom is Shahar, who is never afraid to do that. <laughs> he loves doing that sort of thing where it's like, I'm just going to eke out exactly the right plays, even though you think there's no play skill in this deck, and I'm going to do it. And he's won so many, so many things, so many matches doing that. And he comes in and he top fours. The other, I forget who the other player was in the FPL, played the monitor, but he made top 16. It didn't come as a surprise to me at all that those players did well. You so know, you, you think, you think mono red was underrepresented in that 68 person field or just on the MPL side of the ledger? I think very underrepresented in the MPL ledger. So two out of 32. Yeah. And, and probably just the right deck for that field that uh, thinking about the deck list that people submitted and how they approached the tournament, just people were correctly anticipating that people would move away from it. And so they just weren't that hostile to it. Whereas if you look at the results of it in the MPL, you know, they had the trials, and you look at the results here, it's clearly very, very strong. It's, and just you think about look, just what the deck can do. This deck should not be able to go all the ways it can go. Right. It's just not fair. It's not a normal thing. And yeah, I, I think that was like probably the right choice. Right, it has sweepers. Yeah, I mean, granted, fairly limited sweepers, but it has sweepers, it has card advantage, it has tempo, it has, you know, removal, it, it does... It can just it randomly bury you out of nowhere anytime in several ways. It, it's Yeah, it's not a reasonable thing. And <laughs> the format's more, the format's fair, it's balanced, you, you can beat it. Now, you can, but, now, and, and I saw an interview with Shahar during the, during the tournament, where he seemed pretty wary of playing, he, he was... I think it was more Esper than he was expecting in the field. And he seemed pretty wary of that deck. Do you, do you think Red has uh, not uh, has a better matchup against Esper than maybe Shahar thought? Because he seemed pretty worried about Oath of Kaya's, uh, both for the Lightning Helix effect and both that they just had this easy ability to one-off one their... It certainly must have gotten worse chain that they get their three life points off of that. 
but yeah, I think it's fine. I, I could be wrong. I someone can show me data from Magic Online or whatever that you know because they can collect it and show me that it's pretty bad. But I still think the results speak for themselves. And Esper is a deck that pros love to play. Pros will jump at. It was never unpopular, and yet people who seemed likely to play red played red, succeeded with red, got buys with red, right on a number of occasions. So I don't think that you know. He was wrong to play it, and yeah, when you see the field, maybe you're a little bit nervous because that's not what you wanted, but you can win against anything at any time, and there's definitely a certain, a certain amount of why much I lose to this idiot when it happens, <laughs> like, every time Red beats you, but, you know, even if it's Shahar, like, you're like, this idiot Dak, even if, you know, your opponent's not an idiot, but it's the same thing in the end, right? I mean, what's so. scarier than an idiot deck in the hands of a genius? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like the idiot deck is good enough that he's playing it and he's going to play it correctly. Oh, God. Yeah, no, I, I, I hate it when that happens. Uh, <laughs> no, I was sitting down from Lishi Tian when he was playing Burn and I was playing Infect. And we just, he just starts taking five minutes on every turn, figuring out the exact right line. We have plenty of time, so I'm not worried right, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, oh, my God. You know, these games are so tight. And just like, if this was just a normal Burn player, right. I wouldn't be that worried right now. Right. What, uh, watching Kai, I mean, does that, you know, do you feel yourself like kind of like getting up out of your chair and like getting the Rocky montage going, drinking an egg yolk, hitting a, you know, start punching a yolk dox? I did that as recently as Mythic Championship (laughs) 1. I I did all the stuff. I prepared really, not really hard. At least I I thought it was fully prepared for standard. I did a lot of arena drafts. I realized I didn't put in the physical draft work, but you know, there's nothing like an 0-7 <laughs> uh, when you think you have it. And to be fair, like I was playing a list very close to Autumn's, you know, and when I was watching Autumn's matches, you know, everyone talks about how brilliant Autumn's play was, and Autumn did play really well, but except for the whole thing in the final. It was always like, well, Autumn's playing the correct... Autumn's making all the right plays. Right. So is Autumn's opponent. But, like, they're playing correctly. Their opponent's playing correctly. All these plays are obvious. What's the question? Right. Which is a good sign that you know what's going on. Because yes. you just, you're not even like, I agree with that play. No, that play is just correct. Every other play is wrong. You don't have to think about this. You shouldn't have to think about this. And I still feel like I was playing very well with that deck. I toyed with trying to get into the Mythic Top 8 with it. Uh, things were too hostile, slash, I don't have that kind of time, slash, yeah. that was an insane competition that I would never had a chance of winning. I think a lot of people didn't realize just how insane it was until very close to the end. Right. Including Brad Nelson. Right, right. It's just like, how in the world is anyone ever going to do this? But what, what, yeah. what do you think about the idea of playing in something like an Arena Mythic Championship versus the tabletop, which is such a slog, right? It's so much magic and so many variables and uh multiple formats which is something you have certainly expressed your displeasure about split format pts over the years yes like the ability to go to something like an arena uh mythic championship and to be able to just play standard i mean did you notice the thing were the players who succeeded in this tournament where they were allowed to just play one deck the whole time and play it well <laughs> knew exactly what they were doing on every turn of every game? Like, look at the top four. Three yeah. insane names and somebody who knows his deck inside and out better than anyone. And 
Like, I had one strong disagreement with a play he made while I was watching him, and it stood out because I just didn't have others almost entirely. Uh, there was a turn where he callous dismissaled uh, oh, you're talking about a 1-1 yeah. Yeah, he did a, a vampire uh, instead of playing Search for Us Cantar on turn two, and I was deeply confused because he seemed to be flooding out, and there wasn't really a way that he could stop Conclave Tribunal from happening. And I was thinking to myself, well... If this causes him to put, his opponent to play a third-turn Tribunal instead of playing a threat, that's actually a win. If it does anything else, it gets him the Ascanta down a turn earlier, and you take at most one extra dam, two extra, at most in theory two extra damage if he plays Manalus Marshal before you get a chance to use this Kalosis Missile. And he might play Hero, he might play History of Analia, and then you get a 1-1 to block his 1-1 and bounce his 2-2. Or he might play something else, and then you bounce that and have a 1-1 to block his 1-1 anyway, and stall them for a turn if it's not Manalus Marshal. Or any number of other things. It just, it seemed like the op- you're just giving up so many good scenarios, and it seems like such a generically standard situation to be in. I was confused why he would do it, and if I had a chance to like interview him or something, I'd ask him because I'm sure he has a good reason, right, for thinking that's the right play. I have no idea what it is, and, and it's fascinating to me that as much of his magic as you got to watch, that was the one thing that you saw that right. I and mean, we made there were some judgment calls where we disagreed, but otherwise, no. And in fact. He made the exact changes to the deck that when I looked at Autumn's build, I said... Right, we, we talked about this last week, actually. Yeah. You, you, you were really concerned about uh, Autumn's land selections. Yeah, I thought they didn't have enough blast zones, and in particular that led to them not having enough solutions for Teferi 3. And also I questioned whether they were too worried about color. I thought only two colorless lands doesn't seem like it's necessary. And not only is the third blast zone in the winning deck, there's also a mobilized district. Right. Which is just important for pressuring planeswalkers, and I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but I'm confident the third blast zone was right. Like, it's one of these cases where when it works, it just doesn't randomly kick you out of games. It's great to have the option. <laughs> but it does happen. <laughs> Force mulligans and so on, right? Right, right. Um... Let me, let me ask you, we talked about the, the Mythic Championship here. Uh, people have been talking about this Red Bull tournament that's coming up. And this idea that the organizers are not enforcing that anyone needs to play the same deck from round to round of the tournament. Right? They've explicitly stated, no deck lists. You know, uh... The, there is no rules here, you know, just play a tournament legal deck and you could do this, you know, at, at any time, any round. Sorry. I, what, what, this seems like someone's like, hey, does this seem really interesting? Or does this, I'm like, this just seems really bad to me as someone who's a tournament organizer and someone who ran a website that uh, relied on the content generated from tournaments. Like deck lists are the lifeblood of running these events and what people come to look for. Like, how do you even have some sort of sense of who won with what? It doesn't matter what they didn't deck you played in the last round, right? Right. This The winner will have won with, like, seven different decks. And to the extent that they played duplicate decks, probably shifted a bunch of cards based on what they'd seen so far and what their scouts have reported and so on. Right. Before I get to what I feel is the game theoretic implications of that, <laughs> I just want to comment on the completely Orwellian, bizar- like, bizarro <laughs> world announcement that they couldn't enforce this. 
Right. Right? It's like... Well, and so so this is a little bit of an indictment of wizard software development here in the sense that Arena does not have the ability to host tournaments. Right? Arena does not have um, a tournament function. And Arena doesn't have a hash where it shows you your opponent's dex hash in some form. You can voluntarily show your hash right. or otherwise prove to your opponent that you're playing the deck list. And I realize that that is true. But they're saying the thing that every <laughs> tournament from an eight-man local store up on top to every championship has had zero trouble enforcing at any time in any way is suddenly so impossible that you're going to just blow the doors <laughs> off of everything and change the fundamentals of how tournaments work in ways that we'll get to in a minute, but are mind-bogglingly different. You know, no one could have predicted the break in the levees. You know, no, no one, no, 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 no. This is stupid. This is just crazy. Like, of course you can. I can think of five solutions to this. Right. Like, you can stream the match like everybody does. It's like, you know, like you should be recording the matches anyway. Okay, between games one and two, mouse over your deck list so the camera sees it. You could also just have everybody submit a deck list and have a document, like let everyone just do public deck list. I'm playing you in a round. I can go to the website, look at your deck list. I am going to know if you play an illegal card. You mean the exact same thing that the invita- that the, that the, the Invitational did and that the Mythic Championship just Correct. did? Yeah, yes. that could work. Yeah. As proof, it did. <laughs> and it has, right? Like, this is this is... Yeah, what we there's like a public trust that does go into place too in these tournaments, even when deck lists aren't public, right? And that it's a ridiculously crazy cheat, right? Yeah. In a tournament where you're recording all the matches and can play them all back to play a different deck or a different list from round to round because people are going to watch and they're going to catch you. And so many cheaters have been like, did he play two lands? On that turn, on camera, <laughs> did he break his bridge? Yeah. Did he palm that card? And you can think to yourself, you know, he was on camera. He should have known better, but you know, they don't know how to stop. So they just do it anyway because their brains can't turn off. And it's just very fortunate <laughs> for the rest of us. They need to get caught. But just no one's going to try this cheat on camera because it's not going to work. Like, yes, in theory, you could play four copies instead of three and just cross your fingers and hope that the four copy doesn't show up. Or hope that somehow, like, the number of cards you play in game one over an entire tournament add up to, add up to 59 or 60. And people can't add in the 61 and realize that you cheated. But you're not going to be tracking that. And at some point, if you switch your cards, someone's going to figure out the 61st card got added to your deck. Right. And now, you are an intentional cheater. And you are disgraced for life with 100% proof. And you know what? No one's, no one's stupid enough to risk that. Like... <laughs> And, but let's talk about exactly what's going to happen now, right? Like, let's talk about the All game right. theoretic. Your, your, your Terminator overlay is in place. And... Right. Like, let's, let's forget about why this happened, right? Why this happened is not important now. And by the way, I do like to imagine that one of those options, like in the original Terminator, is always, fuck you. <laughs> but go ahead. And just like then, it's just like you think about it. Yeah, yep. Yeah, that's, that's the right answer. And then you don't say it. But <laughs> interesting that we can curse on this. Oh, yeah. But, I mean... Fair enough. But, so let's think about what happens. So, nobody knows what you're going to play next round. But you do know who you're playing 
as far as I can tell, because it's Arena, before you decide what to play. Otherwise, you could have just submitted a deck list at the right. beginning of the tournament. If they can force you to play what you want to play, they tell you the name of the account that you're playing against, at a minimum. So one option is to get a new account it disguises who you are and pretend you're not you and hope that the brackets aren't released or something, which is already a level I really don't want to get into. But it's presumed for the moment you basically know who the, who the opponent is. Okay, so you know their tendencies, you know what they've played in previous events, you may or may not have been watching their previous rounds, but you have some idea of who you're up against. And you have the opportunity to customize which deck you choose and how you might pre-sideboard that deck or change the cards in that deck and that deck sideboard to account for what is in this guy's range. Right, so if you have watched someone stream for weeks and weeks, you know what, say, Jensen's range is, right? You can say, well, he knows these four decks really well, and these two decks okay, and nothing else, out of the, you know, say, the ten decks that someone might plausibly play. So you can rule out those four decks, and then if you have, like, a good matrix prepared of exactly what's good against what, figure out what is a reasonable way to approach that situation, what decks make sense, and then choose amongst them in some game theoretically defensible fashion, that would be level one. Level two would be... In what, but so these are high-stakes tournaments, and I hear that they stream them. I hear that the players in the tournaments are, like, capable of talking to each other. Like, you're not going to say that, like, we can't enforce deck lists, but we're damn well going to enforce that you can't tell people what happened in the last round. <laughs> like, that just doesn't make any sense. So what I think is good, so what logically happens is, if you're in this big tournament, I don't know the exact prize pool, but it's big enough to matter, all these people have followings because they're streamers. And they are going to recruit a bunch of people and their friends and the people and friends are going to go out and they're going to watch other people play and talk to other people. And they're going to have a scouting army. Because scouting didn't matter less now, it matters more. Because before, you were stuck with the same cards that you had before. And by game two, you knew most of what you needed to know. And like the most incredibly valuable thing, at least before the London Mulligan, in scouting was not he's playing red and he's playing white. It was he only has three copies of Experimental Frenzy. He has this other card that you don't think is in his deck, right? You know, like, he has Blood Oaths in his deck. Be very careful with your factor sections. You didn't think he had Blood Oaths. That's way more valuable, because after you play your first two lands, you now have important information. You have important information for the rest of the match. Right, well, you, you talked last week when we did this about, like, the idea that sometimes someone on your team would be a sideboard decoy. Yes, we would intentionally <laughs> put cards in the decks to disguise scouting. And that's, that's why when I would scout... Often I would put very, I paid much more close attention to scouting, especially key players, for specific cards and specific styles. Because, like, you want to scout for the thing that you won't know in game one, the thing that you will be uncertain of after the first three turns. Because, yes, it doesn't help you mulligan as much in the first game, but every other point is I mean, so much more important. An example of that is just like, it's not enough to know, on a very basic level, it's not enough to know that Brad Nelson is playing Esper. It's important to know, is he playing Esper Hero? Or is he playing, like, Esper mid-range control Right, you want to know things like he's playing Elite Garden Mage instead of Bazooka Bellhop, so you don't have to hold an extra card in your hand to discard it. Right. Right, and you have to plan to hold four deck. You know, you have to hold your Lava Coils, right. they the, don't the, matter. The texture of the deck matters so much. The very little details, they matter so much, knowing exactly how many command the Dread Horde someone has, if you know. Like, but there'll be none of that in this tournament, really. Because, I mean... I mean, unless, I mean, do you, or do you think people, so we, we talked earlier about this idea, like talking about Mattia Leverato, the uh, mythic champion, right? He obviously loved his deck, knew his deck, felt confident with his deck against pretty much everything he could be thrown up against. Um, 
you know, do you feel like a lot of the players in the tournament will just still, like, this is my deck, this is the correct deck for this weekend, and this is what I'm going to play, and I'm going to I'm gonna ride or die with Mono Red, or so, I'm going to ride or die with Simic Nexus. Imagine that you're playing against a player who is known for Simic Nexus, <laughs> who played Simic Nexus at the last major tournament and won a lot of money with it. Yep. And you're picking a deck specifically for one round, to play against them specifically. Yeah. What do you do? Right? You you pick the deck you think is strongest against Civic Nexus, and you at least pre-sideboard it against Civic Nexus, knowing that they are probably on their game one configuration and aren't responding. So it's not just you put your team two configuration in, because that's what you do against Biogenic Lucid Paradise Druid. You put your deck to the configuration where they don't have anything but their A plan, and you can be ready for that. And you annihilate him in game one with whatever deck you choose. Right. I don't know what the right answer is, but you can put decks sure. in. Right. If there are cards in your 75 that weren't in your 75, you don't just have to pre-sideboard here. Right, right. And like, yes, you're in a bad situation game one, and in a lousy situation game two, and yes, if he figures out exactly what the right strategy is and somehow randomly shifts to the answer to the answer, you're in trouble. But if you've got scouts that have been watching him and know that he has played this for the first two rounds of the tournament, and he's probably going to play it in round three. Like, unless it's me he's playing against and he knows that I think like this or something... Yeah, he's going to play it. He's going to be up against somebody who is switching what he's doing. And if that person is ready, if that person knows how to play the, the strategies involved in this, and is quick on his feet and understands the format, he's going to have a huge advantage. It's going to be a 75-25 style matchup at least. Almost, I mean, not if it's, like, maybe if it's red, you, like, just ride or die with, right? There's not that much somebody can do about it necessarily. But... Even that doesn't sound true, right? If you wanted to devote a lot of slots to your sideboard to making you very strong against red and move some of those cards to the main deck, I'm pretty sure you can build a very good anti-red Esper deck if that's what you know your mission probably is, right? Put lots of early removal in your deck, make sure you have lots of adventure ships, experimental frenzy, like just make your ideal 60 configuration, run that. It's not going to actually have any weird cards because they stop printing cards that are weird if you guess wrong about your opponent's deck. So you're still like going to be 40% or something game one against everything else. Right. Like, certainly if you were 50 before, and you'll be fine. So players are basically forced to, at a minimum, go to level two and mix up their play. To choose randomly or semi-randomly amongst a bunch of good decks. And to keep an eye out for people who are not doing this and to punish them for it. And then level three is to know which decks the person is randomizing in. And also to try and scout all of the individual choices and all of the individual cards. And basically you've given people this scouting task that is far beyond what is reasonable to expect of an individual person or even of a tiny team. And so you're going to have an arms race where players who want to win start doing their outrageous things and just eat alive the players who do reasonable things. So this things. just doesn't look anything like a Magic tournament by round four. I mean, it's a tournament of Magic matches. It's, <laughs> it's just every round, it's like we both choose what we want to bring to the tournament. But even if... I mean, part of the question is how fast is this tournament, right? If this tournament is just rapid fire round after round after round after round, then there's not that much time to do things like assemble special configurations of the decks that you want to play. You just have to have every deck in standard built in your arsenal. And it's not clear how much information will disseminate from the larger pool of players. Not every match, I assume, is getting streamed. So you'll do your best. To, you'll do your best. You want to hide what you're doing, like not necessarily more or less than you would before for an individual match, because before you did like you were someone glanced at your deck for five seconds while you're playing one match and knew everything. Now they knew they know everything about one deck that you chose. 
Right. And if you're playing different decks, but like, realistically speaking, if they know you're one of three decks, that's dangerous. Also note that people are bad at randomization. So <laughs> there'll be a lot of players who are like, yeah, he went ABC, ABC. I wonder what he's going to do next. Right. Or just he never played the same deck twice in a row. Or he always plays the same deck twice in a row. And then he switches right. or whatever. And you'll pick up that stuff. But yeah, you're, you're forcing a lot of other stuff into the world. And yeah, it's just a lot less interesting. Like, how many times have we said, that's going to be a really interesting final? You know, that matchup, like, think about the cards he has and think about the, how does that play against what, what they're going to bring to the table. And now the finals is, well, fuck if I know. <laughs> it's like two decks they haven't even played before. Well, there's also this super weird uh, element and I don't know that this will happen, right? But, like, you go to a tournament and somebody has a new deck, right? Like, they're just like, holy crap, here's this new archetype. Yeah. And it's great. Oh, my God. I didn't, I never saw that combo before, right? Here's this combo deck. Like, are you, we going to see people, like, if there's some, like, major technological improvement in standard at the tournament or a radical new sideboard approach, Right. Like, are people just going to scramble to now adopt those practices in their decks moving forward in the tournament? I think you at very least see people scramble to adjust the decks choices they have and their sideboard options and their configurations to combat the new hotness. If a new hotness shows up, especially in quantity, or they know who they're playing against and they know this person has it. And that's going to be very... Also, it's all so distracting. Like, one of the great things... That's is, the thing, yeah. The, the noise factor here is so high for me. Like, the, the, one of the great things about a tournament is that mentality of, this is me, this is who I am today. This is the thought process I'm in. We talked about this for Duo Standard, where you had to have two people. Right. You, had to, you had to split your brain. It was weird. And now you've just got this one person, and you had to make these weird game theoretical decisions, so you had to split your brain in three, kind of. But now you just have this, like, okay, I can't just be the player who plays Esper Hero. I can't be the player who plays Red. I can't be the player who plays Simic Nexus. I have to be the player who can play all three of those and two other decks at any given time who doesn't know what they're going to do necessarily that soon before they have to choose. I mean, if I was doing this, I would almost certainly, like, do my randomization roles for what I was going to do unless I knew something important before the tournament probably several days before the tournament and let it be random so that I didn't get predictable, but then like mentally know what was going to happen. And so like, I'm like, okay, I know that my, my, my segment Nexus round is four today. And so I'm going to think about getting into that mentality for round four and then get back into it for round six. If I survived that long, because I rolled it again, because I have six decks I can play and I rolled one deck twice because I wanted to do that or something of that nature. And players just won't be able to perform at the same level. You won't see the same sorting. Um, but if there's a new hotness, I think trying to copy a deck list that you don't have, that you saw some sure. cards in play, is always a mistake in the heat of the moment, like trying to make changes like that. Uh, you also have the problem of one of the great things about tournaments, to me, is realizing that you made mistakes, that you brought the wrong cards to this tournament, <laughs> that you're in a really bad spot in some weird way, or you didn't sign the answer to a problem, and these are your 75 cards, now solve it, bitch. Right. You know, like, the world is just telling you, you know, here you, are in, here you are in Venice, you brought the Astral Slide deck. Yeah, you win the mirror every time because you spent two weeks doing nothing but being in horrible pain across from Justin Gary. But this red deck is much bigger than you thought it was, and much scarier than you thought it was, and you didn't necessarily know how it works 
and so your sideboard plan isn't working as well as you thought. Well, now tonight, we're going to take the 75 cards we actually have, not the entire format, against the decks that we see in the wild, not every card they might play. And we're going to try and figure out, like, pre-top bait, we do this all the time, right? Like, so in Tokyo, when I won, you know, I had not once, nobody in our team in Tested had said the words sideboard out factor fiction. Not for a second. It had not occurred to anybody enough to mention it to anybody else. I think nobody even thought of it. I go to sleep the night before. I wake up. I'm told to sideboard them out. And I think about it and I realize they're right. And that's so much more interesting to me. Like these, these, these mind games of I know what he has. I know what I have. I don't necessarily have what I would choose to have, but I have to make the most of it. Is so much more interesting a way to progress through the tournament. And often... I build my and I build my sideboard and I build my decks based on this assumption that I don't know what's face what I'm going to face that there are going to be unknown things that I find out are a major player in this tournament that are being brought much more often than I thought that are better than I thought that are better against me than I thought that are just something I've never thought of at all and also that I'm going to figure out I built my deck wrong that I didn't think of something that I'm sideboarding wrong in a given space that a new sideboard card's been found it's sort of the opposite of the Flores spirit right Flores's deck model of deck building as I always understood it was I know exactly what I have to do. I know exactly who I have to beat. I'm gonna have exactly the tools I need to do exactly the things I need in each match. I'm gonna have an exact sideboard plan for each of these situations. I never thought that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's listening, so you just told him that. Um, he knows. <laughs> I've told him many times. He didn't listen. He told me, like, what are you doing? Right. Many times. So uh, we're a couple weeks away from pre-release for Magic 2020. And uh, I kind of, one of the things that's interesting to me that Wizards does now with these sets every time they release is there's usually a handful of signpost cards for limited. Uh, Two-color cards, usually uncommons, almost always uncommons, that tell you a little bit about where the cards are going to go. So I wanted to sort of like maybe play a little game with you and just be like limited or constructed. Like, will any of these two drops or two-color cards uh, bust through and and be constructed playable. Sure. So, yeah, I love going through sets for to see if the cards can make it. I, I don't like to speculate too much on limited myself. Yeah, well, I, on, let's, why we'll, we're that. we'll assume we'll assume that all of these cards are. We could talk a little bit about the implications of but the idea is, yeah. I think a lot of these cards are there naturally for limited. Yeah. Um. But let's so Corpse Knight is where we're going to start. It's white black. It's a zombie knight two two. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, each opponent loses one life. Sam about something, right? <laughs> right, right. That's ex- exactly what you'll. So if there's some sort of like loopy kind of thing you can do with a creature, um, yeah. Token generation is the first thing that comes to mind. Like there's already a deck that generates a lot of tokens. Splashing a third color in this format isn't that hard. So like we might see an Obzon tokens list that oh, does this is the first thing that comes right. to mind. So something like March of the Multitudes becomes um, pretty pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, if this was a vampire, I'd actually kind of be kind of scared. Right. Because right. that deck was always, like, not quite there, but this fits exactly into what that deck is trying to do, and suddenly all these players who can't quite afford to build a, a full deck on Magic Arena have something to aspire to, and maybe it's actually good. Uh, as, an, as a zombie, I'm less scared unless there's cards that I'm not aware of that I... That, they make something happen. I, I do like this idea of like throwing obs on tokens. There are enough things that generate massive amounts of tokens. Yes. Uh, and, and this just lets those cards become like actual 
expels, like, in terms of, like, kill you. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be shocked to see a modern deck that uses this. It's the kind of deck, kind of card that just has an effect that can scale right. in an interesting way. Well, there's already, like, yeah, there's already a bunch of loop things you can do with char- with creatures and persist and undying and, and all those kind of things, or if suddenly you can... You know, this just is one other piece you can tutor for. In those. It's one, like, if, yeah, if it's a kill spell. And the problem is that uh, those decks don't care about making incremental life loss on your opponent. So yeah. this card is just terrible if you draw it without the combo in those combo right. decks. Right. So I'm guessing it's not a combo deck. I'm guessing it's more of a sandblock deck. Okay. So, <laughs> so just an inextricable noose that's ever tightening. The aristocrats. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the aristocrats. Okay. Uh, Creeping Trailblazer. Uh, red green for an elemental 2 2. Other elementals you control get plus one, plus zero. Uh, but I guess the, the highlight here is two RG. Creeping Trailblazer gets plus one, plus one until end of turn for each elemental you control. Which, interestingly, although it says other elementals on the first line, uh, it doesn't say other elementals so it always, on the second line. So it always does something. So it's always able to give itself plus one, plus one. Which so is so the, hi- the highlight here is Chandra. Have you met Chandra? You like Chandra, don't you? Coming soon to Netflix. Um, but, and I do like Chandra, and I do like Netflix, so I, and I, and I'm looking forward to that. But, I'm really looking forward to the, you know, the the prompt where the Netflix is not sure if it, are you still there? Are you still watching Chandra? <laughs> Three Chandras are you, together, or are you too busy casting Chandra? Yeah. I mean, good for you, right? But no, it's um. So again, it's a two-two for two mana. Which means that it's got something going on. It's a minor lord, which helps somewhat. And the boost is something, but it's a lot of mana. Four right. is a lot. So my inclination here is there'd better be a real elemental deck. Or I'm not interested. Right. Right. This is needs this help. Needs a lot of help. But it's a good card in an elemental deck. Right? If you're boosting all if you're boosting the power of your entire other team and can make this guy super, I'm excited. But yeah, if I'm not playing 22 elementals, what am I even doing? Right. If you took the first line out and replaced it with trample, does it become more interesting to you or less? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. The the, the world in which I managed to assemble a big team of elementals and now I get to pump up and trample through, like, just doesn't seem like it's that impactful versus being able to t- pump up and not trample through. Okay. Whereas being able to boost the power of my other creatures without spending any mana is pretty exciting to me. Right. Okay. Uh, Empyrean Eagle is one white blue for a bird spirit it's a two three flyer and it has other creatures you control with flying get plus one plus one so this is like a a straight up aerial lord this is straight up modern horizons this is straight up spirits seem cool but you know what spirits don't have enough of lords (laughs) they really don't have enough lords we better give them another lord and someone probably, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this was in the Modern Horizons file, and then someone said, you know, this actually plays really well in Standard as an M20 card. Can we just steal that? And they said, sure. It doesn't mean that it happened. It just seems like the kind of thing that would have right, happened. Right, And I think it's it's cool. Um, it makes, I think it makes Modern. I think, I think you, you think this card will make it into the, into the Spirit Stacks in Modern? I am not positive, and I certainly would be surprised. I'm surprised to see four of Sure. I, think, I think they have enough other things to do. Right. But I think that the Spirit deck is very much about I want as many lords as I can get my hands on and just giving it another lord is what it wants, even though this lord is a little bit weak. 2-3 is pretty good stats for a lord. Right. And it flies. So given that everything you play flies anyway, with notably rare exceptions, right. I think that 
yeah, I think you want probably some copies of Imperial uh, of Imperian Eagle in that deck. Whether it makes standards again, a function of how many reasonable players it are. needs help. It yeah. doesn't have the help from what I can think of, but doesn't mean it's not there. Um, all right, next up is Iron Root Warlord, one GW for a Tree Folk Soldier, and it is Star Five. And star is Iron Iron Root Warlord's power is equal to the number of creatures you control. So this is a card, kind of a class of card that goes all the way back to the very beginning, really. Uh, but this also has um, three GW create a one one white soldier creature token. By the way, a casting cost to make a token that has been paid in standard formats in the past. Oh, you'll pay it. Like, yeah. you will eventually run out of things to do with your mana, and you will pay it. And you also have the threat of paying it, right? If you always have a, you always have one more power if you really need it, which is right. useful even if you never activate it. The five is exciting to me. I, this one, I mean, this is, for three mana, a, like a one five, which is what this is just by itself, is, is, is pretty hard to get past. Again, Selesnia tokens is a thing. Yeah. This deck already exists. If it's Avzan tokens, all of a sudden, it's even more of a thing. <laughs> but it's clearly a thing, and... It seems weird to not at least test this card in it. It seems like it should be pretty good. Uh, five toughness is a lot of toughness. The red deck is not going to love facing this card, shall we say? <laughs> a lot of other decks are not. Some other decks are not going to particularly love facing this Am card. Am I really going to fight with fire? This, yeah. Oh, you are. Yeah. No, that's like you're going to be very happy when you get to fire fire this. But probably it, again, it just comes down to if Selenium token's good enough. Um, you know the the app. The Abzan Lord, I look at the Abzan Legend, and it's like, no, this is not going the same deck as the cards we're talking about. Well, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to the three cards. Yeah, yeah, I just like, happens to be right there staring at me. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Lightning Stormkin. It is, uh, it is it. It costs just red-blue. It's an elemental wizard. Flying Haste 2-2. Two, two. Oh, look, the cribbing from my game. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> just a little. No, I'm kidding. Uh, kind of. Um... <laughs> We may have had a very similar card in our file at one point. Um, so, I mean, this card plays really good magic, right? Like, it's just, I smack you on turn two, and I keep smacking you with evasion, and wizard is not an irrelevant I, I, word, and elemental might be a relevant word. I've also seen people doing really well with Adelies lately in Standard. <laughs> you know, like, blue-red wizards is still, like, a thing. If blue-red is a thing, this card's a thing. Like, if, right. this is, if this is the thing you want to be doing, yeah. this is pretty good. I, I have never been the kind of guy who does this particular <laughs> effect. Sure. But this is a good rate, I think. Like, I think it's it a, seems like a really... This, this to me, seems like, uh, of the cards we've looked at already, uh, is the one that I, I felt like the most confident would find some lane in standard. I'm not confident. And the reason I'm not confident is because I'm not convinced the deck that it's in is any good. Right. I think it's good. Sure. I, I don't think that it belongs in the Is It Phoenix style decks that we've seen at all. I think it's clearly a very bad fit for those decks. It just doesn't do anything they want to do. Uh, which means that it has to be in the Wizards deck. Right. Or in a new deck that we haven't seen. And again, I am skeptical of those decks getting there. Uh, a lot of people got a lot of help. Yeah. And that deck wasn't good enough before. And just... There's just so much out there that's, like, ridiculously powerful. Like, if we keep talking about spoilers, we'll see so many push cards in this set. <laughs> and there already were so many elsewhere. And I think there's something to power to me. 
So, you know, are you doing anything? Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah. even if this gives a significant boost to the wizard deck, if everything else going on in 2020 is so pushed, that just doesn't matter. It's not enough. It's not enough. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that sort of uh, holistic yeah, you, you, uh, vision. Like, you get so zeroed in on the card you're looking at and finding a use for it that sometimes you forget to just pinch the map out and look right, at like I was so excited by... So I, I had a Biomaster Familiar deck that I wrote about. Right. That was, like, tier two, like, much better than people thought it was, like, almost there. And I'm thinking to myself, well, War of the Spark, give me some help. Right? Give me some <laughs> help, baby. Rubbing my hands. I see... This four or five for five mana that does like things I want it to do. I didn't have a good card in that slot. It's exactly kind of it's like this is perfect. This is what I wanted. I see a I see a, a two mana card that like lets me start proliferating incidentally. I get excited. This deck's bad so much better. I wanna try this out. And by the time I get around to building I'm done drafting and I'm trying to build constructed decks, I don't even bother. Because time has raveled around you. Everyone, yeah, everyone else has gotten so much better at what they're doing that I know, and and the situation has gotten so much more hostile that I know I don't have it. And yeah, my my name's Stormkin. I mean, being able to attack planeswalkers immediately is definitely appealing. And, and, And honestly, often a lot of those planeswalkers are pretty vulnerable at two, right? Like a lot of those, a lot of the the cheap early planeswalkers that just get these like. Small advantages on the board uh, are often pretty vulnerable if you have something that can get at them very quickly. And these control decks have clearly moved away from the shocks right. and the sarcons towards the Esper because the Esper has the Oak of Kaya thing going on now and it's just too powerful. So, yeah, this might be a useful thing to do. Uh, looks really bad against the Elite Guard Mage. <laughs> Go Mage. So. That's, that's, that's a two turns from now problem. Not a this turn problem. You, I'm always on curve. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Moldervine Reclamation. This is more my curve, by the way, than, you know, I'm all about the five mana do nothing enchantment. Uh, Three uh, black green for an enchantment. Whenever a creature you control dies, you gain one life and draw a card. You wanted an Abzan Tokens deck? Maybe we can make this happen? Yeah. Like, if you think about it, right, it's the exact same thing, right? If now, every time I play a token, you lose a life, and then it dies, and I gain a life, and I draw a card, we're kind of in business, right? Like, <laughs> Right, I get to, even if you even if you manage to wipe me out, or I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get to replenish my hand and do all my things over again. I mean, you know what this card is exciting with? Here are Precinct 1. Oh, wow. Ooh. Right? Like... Super exciting. That just seems really cool. Right, this so, does not say non-token creature, right? This is right. just like, this is like a creature. Now that we're playing three colors, we're just a hero deck, right? Like, that's what the Obzan token deck does. Ooh. So Ooh, I like this deck. I'm building it in my head as we talk, <laughs> but I think that's where we're going with it. I worry, you know, I worry about, like, the power level of everyone around me and whether or not I can compete with them. But being able to play hero seriously, right? We have... You know, some really good gold two and three drops that we can use. Yeah, maybe we got yeah. something. And we, and we don't necessarily, don't if we get Kaya's Wrath, then we're like, okay, well, we'll just get some life, draw some cards. Well, yeah, if Molder Von Reclamation hits, right, and yeah. you're not dead, 
Yeah. Yeah, and you have time to develop, like, and it stays on the table, it's really great. Uh, five mana permanents that don't immediately wipe people, do anything are kind of dangerous in a world of D-Sparks and D-Fairies. That's and, fair. So, a- AKA my sweet spot. Uh. Realistically, no, this is not going to work. But okay. you've talked yourself out of it as you've been. Well, it's not that I talked myself out of trying it; it's that I talked myself like it's not going to work, right? It's like you try it because you never know, right. and it'll be a blast trying. Sure, but is. like probably not. Like but you try these things, you see what happens. All right, Ogre Siege Breaker, two black red, so it's four mana for an Ogre Berserker. That's a four three. Uh, two black red destroy target creature that was dealt damage this turn. This is obviously a miss. Yeah, like, like this is just not a constructed yeah. card. They're, I mean, it's a miss in the sense that it doesn't do the thing that we're talking about, but it's not a miss in the sense that they were trying. Right, right. This is just this. This is not like the others. This is just. <laughs> I am here. I'm black red. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's talk about Risen Reef. One green blue for an elemental. So one one. Whenever Risen Reef or another elemental under enters the battlefield under your control, look at the top card of your library. If it is a land card, you may put it into the onto the battlefield tap. If you don't put the card onto the battlefield, put it into your hand. So basically, this turns all elementals into coiling oracles. I get that it does that. But it's what was coiling oracle mana cost? Calling Oracle costs green blue. It also doesn't put the land into play tapped, which is pretty pretty exciting when you hit like a Gaia's Cradle off of it in Commander. But this doesn't sound like it's going to be enough, then, does it? Like I, I feel like this this card has illusions of meta fixing in standard for an elemental deck that runs across at least three colors that I don't buy. I mean, I think this card is definitely nodding in the direction of Coiling Oracle. I get what it's trying to do, but I just do not think this is the kind of thing you can do. I think that a three mana one one that you know is a cantrip. Yeah. That makes your other elementals cantrips is. Yeah. I, it's fringy. It's not that there can't be an elemental deck that does that ever. Like I won't rule it out. Yeah. But also in general, like the whole like. I have to have a multicolor thing going on to get started. Yeah. It's always... Yeah, if, if this wasn't elemental. We don't have this kind of time. Yeah. I'm not going to get Chain Warlord out. It's, <laughs> it's, it feels terrible, man. All right. So uh, we're going on now to Boros. Red, white, human knight for a 1-2 is flying. Oh, wait. There's more. Whenever Sky Knight Vanguard attacks, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token that's tapped and attacking. How old do we have to be? It's like one, two, flying for two minutes. But wait, there's more. As opposed to, of course, there's more. <laughs> like, why? Well, it we... was a sarcastic. But wait, there's more. I, I felt the old like Ice Age drafter going in there. Or Ice Age sealed back player going in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, yeah. I'd kill for a one-two flyer. Come on, that kills people. <laughs> I can howl that from beyond. Oh my god. No, but feast of the unicorn on this. Yes. My brain thinks this should have haste. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, you know, certainly looking at the the Lightning Stormkin, right? No, it just it's white. It's a white red like Barosi flyer that like wants to go hit them, right? Like, but yeah. instead he just hangs out for the Sky Knight Legionnaire to show up next turn. Yeah, then there's just a lot of things that can go wrong here. 
Like, our 1-1 soldier that has to attack is very, very easy to not do anything. And it's, and it's not, it, relevantly, not a flying token. Correct. Right? No, if so, it gave you a spirit. Right. I'd be, I'd be into this. Right. It so like when you is it, is it just me? Like when I first read this and I see that this has flying and it makes a token when it attacks, I kind of expect that the token will fly as well. But then you read the flavor text and it's clear that it can't fly. Because the flavor text says, jump now. <laughs> well, you don't know if they did. Maybe it would have worked. You don't know. He's trying to teach. Yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird flavor text. It's a weird story they're trying to tell here. <laughs> Um, this this isn't this isn't a card that's gonna compare this to Hero Precinct One. Yeah, like no, right? Like one toughness is not one one power is not very much. It's just no, no. It's fringy. Like, it's fringy. I can see it happening in like again some token style thing. That's in, the, no. Ooh, this is this is a little more interesting. Tomebound Lich. This has got some abilities and casting costs that have. Found constructed homes in the past. So start with the cast and cost. One blue black. So Shadow Mage Infiltrator, Psychotog, uh, that kind of, uh, you know, range of things. Uh, it's one three zombie wizard. It has death touch. It has lifelink. And it has whenever thoughtbound, tonebound lynch enters the battlefield or deals combat damage to a player... Draw a card. Oh, wait, there's more. Then discard a card. You had me, and then you lost <laughs> me. I think that's my answer. I, I I was really excited reading it. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I see, I see draw a card down there somewhere. Oh, and then... But it can't be that easy. You can't just give me an Ophidian for free. Right. Just because I spent three mana and give a Death Touch and Lifelink. It's not going to be that easy. I, it's not, not that you totally lost me. So there are these Nimrod decks. And people play them. And they occasionally win matches. <laughs> and people keep playing them. And they're going to want this. Yeah. Like, they're going to think this card is good. And they're mostly going to be wrong. Uh, but they're going to think that their deck is good. And they're going to occasionally play it. And I don't think they're going to get better. By playing it. I think they're going to get vaguely slightly worse. But... Yeah, I mean, again, like, just the fact that you get to loot once, it's just not that exciting. Right. Well, certainly when you think, again, think about the things that have occupied this space at two and three mana for, like, the, the range of one threes that have existed here, right? Shadow Mage Infiltrator, Ophidian that you mentioned. Uh, you think about, um, you know, the Soothsayers and various, you know, things that are like, look at two cards, put one card in your hand when it enters the battlefield. Like... It's this this the the discarder card is just like oh okay, I get that this blocks things on the ground, but that's just not anybody's problem. <laughs> like nobody cares. Right. And people who do care can burn this thing if it actually matters. Right, and you didn't actually win that much off of it. Right, it pressures planeswalkers is basically not at all. Right, it doesn't threaten to end the game if it hits you the way that Ophidian or Shadow Mage Jumpwitch Trader does. Like this costs the same price as Thief of Sanity. Are we out yet? Oh, we're out. Good. That's what I thought. All right. So now there's also another handful of multicolored cards here that, that have been uh, released officially as of this recording uh, that are all three-color cards. Yep. So this is 
these are not cards you're necessarily thinking about for limited, but are clearly aimed at something like Commander. They're mythic, so they're clearly not going anywhere. Yeah, Yeah, these are mythics. They're aimed clearly with an eye towards the Commander format. You know, they're ready-made to have a deck built around them. But now I want to... It's the same thing, though. I want to see, are any of these cards good enough to make it into the new standard format? So, by they're aimed at Commander, in air quotes, might they be aimed at Commander... In a format without certain older sets? Oh, sure. So, uh, so they, 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 they're also Brawl cards, clearly. Yeah. Right, you're right. I, I, I don't think about Brawl as a format. Uh, I haven't played it, yeah, but, yeah. but it is a format. And that's certainly, when these cards were being designed, there were probably some grander designs for Brawl at this point in Magic's life cycle. <laughs> and I'm sure there are still grand designs for Arena. Yeah. I, oh, sure. You know, we can't use the old stuff, and Commander is very popular. And right. if they weren't thinking eventually of getting Commander onto Arena, they were leaving, something, they were leaving a lot of fun on the table. Uh, so, yeah, this does open up a lot of Brawl possibilities. These all do so, on Arena. Yeah, that's, that, that's what, that's what I, my mind thinks like about that. I, from a flavor perspective, am not particularly excited to see like random people I've never heard before and become three core legends. I am not particularly excited by the fact that the three I'm looking at all be with K. <laughs> well, um, it's like they reflect this year's NBA free agent class. Clay, Kyrie, Kawhi, all start with K. Great things start with K. So they're like... They're Two kind of them of, are injured. So sure. They're, so they're kind of like, you know, a group of people with similar identities, like a clan. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just... <laughs> No, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's, let's move on and talk about some of these cards. Uh, Kalia Zenith Seeker is Mardu. That's exactly yeah. what it costs. Legendary Human Cleric. Flying Vigilance. When it enters the battlefield, look at the top six cards in your library. You may reveal an angel card, a demon card, and or a dragon card from among them and put them into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Standard or commander? So, 3-3 three, three Flying Vigilance for 3 mana. Yeah. When you are getting a bunch of card advantage from it, we're in, right? Yeah. It's a matter of, you're doing a bunch of work. This is three colors that don't fix mana very well. And then, are you actually going to be able to get Angels and Demons and Dragons on my into your deck right. in a reasonable way that lets you get payoff from this? Noting that this is none of those things. <laughs> right? If this was any of those things, I would be so into it. Right. Like oh, where, where, like, it could replace itself. Right. Like, yeah. you could just hit yourself at all. So the question is, can I have a cohesive deck that does interesting things that could support this? A lot of the good demons and angels, I think, are, like, kind of awkward to play with this because they're double color and just, in general, it's not pretty. Um, there aren't that many, like, dragons tend to be double red, demons tend to be double black, your mana's gonna suck. <laughs> like, you're gonna have a deck that could have played just one or two of these colors otherwise, so this is gonna be awkward. It's a payoff card, right? It's a payoff for doing something hard. And I don't think it's good enough given what I know, can think of right now. Right. I mean, the thing that immediately leapt to mind for me is something like Feather the Redeemed as an angel you could play. 
which is a great start, but Feather is now pulling you in a completely different direction, right? Right. Like, I think the problem is now Feather tells you to play all these spells, and you can't hit spells. Right. So, like, to me, when I see this card, I think to myself, I don't want to play very many spells. I need three classes of, of creature to make this viable. Right. I want a lot of hits. I only have three cards to find them. So, like, the first ten are all incredibly valuable towards my chance of finding just, them. I just want a Nameless Inversion reprint here. The Changelings are all in Modern Horizons, right? <laughs> right? Like, it'd be pretty cool. It doesn't say Creature card, right? It just says Angel card. I could take a Nameless Inversion, right? Oh, sure. If they provided these things <laughs> to you, you would take them. It's great they gave you that out. But... No, it just I don't see you getting multiple cards off of this very often. You have three cards to dig, and you have to hit, you know, two creatures. They have to be different of the three classes. Yes, yeah, that's important. And your mana is terrible. The more I think about your mana, the worse it gets. Like your mana is really bad, (laughs) right? Like if you're trying to play anything good in these categories, you're double at least by turn five, and often by turn four, and your curve has to be good. And I just don't think. Making, it, making an incohesive deck with bad mana is going to just is, is going to be worth it to get this card. What if, what if you're just aiming at one of those things? Right, that becomes the question. Right, can we build an angel deck with this, or yeah. a dragon deck with this, or a demon deck with this? So I've seen some hints that a dragon deck is a possibility, and a dragon deck does like having a three three flying visionless creature for three mana as part of its theme. It does have a problem with the first few turns. The problem being that like. There aren't white dragons. There aren't black dragons. We're Fadam. Right. So why are we playing this mana that makes this... Where, where is our mana getting this ugly? Like, the mana fixture that I want to play is Dragon's Horde in that deck. And Dragon's Horde is three mana. So sure. this is going to be just a turn four seat. play. It's like when you could have played, you know, Demanding Dragon or Lyra or... What not in that slot? Given what you're a fine piece of card advantage to draw off of this. I like Lyra with this, but how do you, you know? And you can play Lyra in Restoration Eight. You can play the there's an Angel deck. Yeah, like you can put this in the Angel deck, but the Angel deck didn't want to have red or black in it. <laughs> so how just how much did we murder our mana base to do this? And what else did we get out? Of how it? do you think they went on to become angels? You murdered your mana base, they ascended to heaven, they became angels, and that's how it no, works. No, if your mana base ascends to heaven, you just can't cast any spells. Oh, okay. That's fair. <laughs> um, okay. So, Kethis, the Hidden Hand. This costs Abzan, Legendary Creature, Elf Advisor, to 3-4. Uh, legendary spells you cast cost one less to cast. So... You know what's legendary? <laughs> Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Every Planeswalker. I said everything. Yeah. Uh, exile two legendary cards from your graveyard, and then until end of turn, each legendary card in your graveyard gains, you may play this card from your graveyard. This is an intriguing ability. Yes. Yes, it is. Both abilities are intriguing. The ability to accelerate your mana for all the Planeswalkers, and there are some significant, like, Five and six mana Planeswalkers that this accelerates you to. And potentially, you know, again, Lyra Dawnbreaker on turn four off of this, right, is a natural thing to do. Uh, there's a handful of other expensive creatures that might make sense. Wait, Lyra Dawnbringer on turn four off of this is 
is pretty optimistic, right? Like just you know, we were talking about the mana on the on the Calia side. The you know, I mean, to go Obzon and then you know the fourth, you know, get that double white. I haven't thought about exactly what you're using to fix your mana. This seems a lot less optimistic, right? Okay. Like you get cards like Paradise Druid to help. Oh, you. that's fair. Yeah, good point. You have green and i haven't like done a search recently to see exactly what the green mana fixing is but sure. it certainly seems like it there's always some gift of paradise adventure impulse is a thing right. for sure i okay. would play it um it seems to me like legendary spells cost you one less to cast is a pretty powerful thing to have three four for three mana is below rate these days but not terrible and late in the game if you are playing a deck full of legendary stuff it's pretty awesome the problem to me is that these covers don't have the good legendaries Sure, like, you know, you're, like, on a Soren and you're on a, some, you know, Nyssa, maybe, or... The Johnny doesn't seem great. The Johnny doesn't seem great, yep. Liliana 6 is good. Oh, sure. If you can get there, Lyra, you know, Lyra Dawnbringer's good, but this just doesn't seem to be where standard is. I, I feel like, again, you're being forced down a path that your cards are just not as good at doing what they need to do in this world. And so you're just not going to get there. You're just not going to be able to sacrifice the cards the second after he wants to play otherwise. Like, I kind of want to fix... Like, we're talking about it being optimistic. Like, like Branchwalker is another card that, like, helps you get to this thing. Right. But, like, that just said you have a path that this aren't enough cards in your deck that do the thing. <laughs> right, you, you need a critical mass of legends. But you kind of want to play pretty badly Jade Light Ranger and Merfolk Branchwalker, right? So that you can mill cards into your graveyard sure. to get activations. Right. But that also takes away eight creature slots that now are busy being not legends. Right. I keep thinking about cards that you could play with this, but then they're in Modern Horizons and they they don't do me any good. Also, you know, enabling someone else's command the Dread Horde is always is always dangerous. not so fun. Yeah. Although although to be fair, this does provide you some protection against someone using Command the Dreadhorde against you. You have legendaries in your yard, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, exile two legendaries. Like, you can do that at any time. This isn't as a sorcery, so... And you can you play... Can... You always play your own. So, right. maybe there's a graveyard deck of some kind? I don't know. Obviously, if this activates even once, it's going to be a really good deal. Yeah. But you, you, you're seeing this more commander than standard at, at first glance. Looks like a really cool commander. Yeah. I, I think it's just not in a good position to match up with the cards that are out there right now. Well, where this is super interesting in Commander is also, like, the amount of legendary lands you can just throw into your deck <laughs> that, you know, just are fodder for this in the graveyard is uh, is pretty cool. Uh, Kekar wins Fury. Uh, it's one and a Jeskai for a legendary bird wizard. It's a 3-3 flyer for four. Okay. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 one, one White spirit creature token with flying. And then it has an, a very interesting line of text to me. Uh, again, this though might just be for commander. Sacrifice a spirit, add red. So to me, the question is, are we trying to get some sort of combo deck that is trying to change spells in some hyper-aggressive way? If we are, I have no idea how to get there in standard. I, I don't see where the tools are. Um, and if not, I think this is just bad murmuring this deck. <laughs> I realize it gets you spirits, and they're cool, and you can sacrifice them for mana. And but, I get that three power is more than one, but five is a lot more toughest than three. Yes, yes. 
and it's a murmuring mystic that's wandered into the bad section of town and didn't bring its Kevlar. I'll keep the birds, thank you very much. Yeah. They fly too. It's fine. It's a lot easier to cast. All right. Uh so we're, we're yeah, we're 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 looking at that as a uh, as commander. Okay. Omnoth Lucas of the Royal. Oh, I know Omnoth. And Omnoth is a is a big uh um, Omnoth. Yeah. <laughs> Generally all Omnoths have been uh, commander staples. This is one in a teamer for a 3-3 elemental. Again, not great stats. When Omnoth, Locus of the Royal, enters the battlefield, it deals damage to any target equal to the number of elementals you control. It's an elemental, so we start start off dealing one damage. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on target elemental you control. If you control eight or more lands, draw a card. I'm just going to call this one as Commander before you even get going, but I'm curious what you have to say. This feels weirdly like they think there's something somewhere that there isn't anything, as far as I can tell, and I'd want to do another pass. Do you feel like this card has been pushed? Like, they're like, we're a little worried about this. Like, it said six lands at some point. No, no, I'm not thinking that. I don't think they nerfed it. I just... It feels like they want this to be a thing. But none of the cards involved are a thing. Like, individually. Right. Right? Like, they want you to have to do these three colors together. They don't really give you the tools to do it. And what's your payoff? Right? There's no payoff here. This is bad. Well, I guess if you're... I mean, and keep this in mind for your Brawl decks. But, you know, if you're Omnathing and Risen Reefing, you know, and suddenly all your elementals are putting extra lands onto the battlefield... You might get to draw a card if you have eight lands. Risen <laughs> Reef is just a can. Makes everything a cantrip. Yeah. I think that's a much better way of thinking of it. Yeah. Like, yes, the land comes into play instead of going to your hand, but by the time you... It's not going to make much difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, Risen, Risen Reef, Omnath are actually... Have a lot of it. So when when you get those lands, extra lands... Look, okay, I'm all for turn one, Lighter Elf, turn two, Risen Reef, turn three, do stuff as a plan. But if you don't do that, right. I think you're just not getting much mileage out of the lands being in play. They come right. into play tapped. You already had three mana, so you're going to have four anyway. How big is your elemental curve deck really go? It's not... I don't I, I don't see this being that impactful. Okay. I just don't see... This deck doesn't seem like it's there. Like, look, well, you have another, element, another elemental's coming up <laughs> in the wrong colors. It's got black in it instead of red. So... Yeah, this is the elemental horror. Yarok the Desecrated. Two and a Sultai. I am here for whatever this is. Legendary creature, elemental horror, death touch and lifelink, three five. And then the text is Panharmonicon. If a permanent entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. Including itself. Uh meaning, you know. The card that entered play. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm, like, looking for the triggered ability on Yarok. And I'm no, 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 no. I meant, yes. like, yeah. Yes. You if four you, four times with Jade Light if, Ranger. If you play your Jade Light Ranger, it, it does that twice. If you play a Yavamaya Granger, you would search out two lands. Yep. I, I can tell you this card is going to kick a card out of my City C Commander deck. Uh, it is it. immediately going... I'm going to... Sultai Soothsayer, like crazy with this card. Uh, you know, I love it. I love this card for Commander. 
Uh, this card is probably a super exciting brawl build around. You know, there's probably a ton of really interesting things you'll be able to do with it. But is this... I mean, Panharmonicon's a pretty powerful ability. And, you know, a 3-5 Death Touch Lifelink is a fairly substantial uh, body old. on the board. Yeah, oh, I am. Yeah. Like, I have to train myself constantly to remember that a 5-mana 3-5 Death Touch Lifelink isn't that good. You're just, you're just going to be dead, huh? You're just not doing very much there. I mean, it's something. It's, you know, it blocks really well if it's allowed to. I see what... I see the deck this wants to be. Right. Right? We all see the deck this wants to be. This is a Command the Dreadheart Soul Tie deck. Right. That's trying to set up the Jade Light Ranger mess. Sure. I can't think of anything else that comes close. You're right. You want a Ravenous Chupacabra with this. Right? Like... I'm sad it doesn't work with... Uh, Hydro Crisis. Right. Oh, no, it does not. Yeah. It works with Hostage Taker. It works with... Oh, yeah. Hostage Taker is a great choice. It works with Chupacabra. It works with Jade Light Ranger. It works with Perfect Branch Walker. It works by implication with Wild Growth Walker, even though it doesn't technically work with Wild Growth Walker. <laughs> so, that's a thing, I guess. Um, and maybe this is a five drop that makes that deck more interesting. Certainly, it if you can set up and you have enough life to like command the dread horde for this. And hey, I was just gonna say if you get Daylight this, Ranger. if you get this back off your dread horde, it's pretty right. Insane. That's ten life minimum. That's like nine life minimum to do anything, right? Because you have to get back a wild growth walker and a movement branch walker unless you have stuff already. And to get, to get paid off, you have to probably pay like more like twelve or thirteen. So it's not cheap in terms of life to do this, right? So you'll often not be able to do it. Um. And you have to be pretty, you know, I think if you're pretty on this, like you give up your yeah. chances to do a lot of cool other things. I, I, I think get your foil copies of this because this is going to be the one of the single most popular commanders. I'm not talking brawl here. I mean, it might be good in brawl, but people are going to build commander decks around this and they're going to build commander decks around this for as long as commander is a format because... Who doesn't want to build a deck with Panharmonicon as your commander? I mean, as long I mean as, besides you. <laughs> as long as decks, as long as creatures don't keep getting stronger. One of these days I'll get a co-host who cares at all. I like, I, I can get you to talk about limited with me. Oh, sure. No problem. <laughs> Which I can never do with Mike. But command, Commander, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to find a third occasional podcast partner here who will talk Commander with me. I'm accepting applications. You can reach me on Twitter at Top 8 Games. I have never actually played out a game of Commander. All right. It doesn't. <laughs> I understand. doesn't do it. I understand. All right, we've got one last card here. Uh, Rain. Rain. Uh, I guess I'm going to call it Rain. Uh, Angel of Rebirth. She makes it rain. She, I like uh, it. Yep. Uh, she is two in Anaya, so you know Mike loves this card. For a legendary angel, 5-4, uh, flying. Other multicolored creatures you control get plus one, plus zero. And then whenever another multicolored creature you control dies, return it to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. My brain is just reacting is like, working hard or hardly working? <laughs> like, uh, 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 uh. Like, this card's working hard, right? But it's hardly working. Yeah. Like, it's just not doing anything relevant to the world we live in. 
Right. It's it's coming down as a 5-4, giving your creatures a tiny power boost, and then waiting to hope you untap. And... Yeah, if your other creatures die, you get them back, so it's, like, safe from sweepers. But it's a 5-drop, so it should win the game on its own. Just play Lyra. Right. What are you doing? It's... This is, again, like, just a lot of work for... So, so, so really, it feels like looking at all of the three-colored cards we, we talked about, they all feel pretty squarely... Like, if you open these in your Mythic slot, you're really... You're opening a Brawler Commander card. And we don't, we don't really see... Kaylee um, is the one... I mean, Kaylee maybe... Right. Kephas... I mean, Kephas is certainly super powerful... I feel like Kethis is a card that we... Also keep in mind that just because we don't like them now. Right. right? I, I absolutely understood. Yep. Yeah. A year from now, with another cycle of cards, replacing the old ones, like maybe the good legends are as, are absent in a year. Like right. Like a significant portion of them. Maybe they print a bunch of weird multicolored angels or demons or something that fit here. Right. That makes this a lot better. Or, or the mana fixing to make this... More viable. Yeah, although if you're not green, that's going to be tough. Right. Right. And we got when we have the the scry temples are in this in the set. I think that's the what we've seen. Uh, and don't get me wrong, the mana the mana right now is pretty good, right? Like yeah, it's not that the mana is bad. I mean, so I see some of the temples. Yeah, we see five temples. We see uh, five that are suspiciously patterned, so yeah. we don't have any evidence yeah, of that other five. It's all the opposite colored uh, temples. Yeah. Do Lotus Field. Yeah, oh yeah, Lotus Field's an interesting card. You know? Works uh works with amulet of uh what you call it? Bigger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah. There's also isn't there also that card uh from one of the recent sets that says like basically you can't sacrifice lands or something like that or uh, abilities of lands entering play don't trigger I think that's I think that's the it's like a red enchantment you're not thinking you're not thinking of the white creature that's two three right no no I'm thinking I think it's a I think it's a an enchantment from probably M nineteen is my guess yeah, I'll just look at the lands real quick see if there's anything here. Yeah, there's that cycle of the Bloodfuckless cycle, which doesn't do anything. Yeah. Um, Cryptic Caves is just a lot of work. No. Evolving Wilds is Evolving Wilds. I like People of the Dead. Like, I think that's interesting. Um, you get... If you have seven or more lands with different names, you get a 2-2 black zombie token, zombie token every time you play a land. Oh, so right. if yeah. you have a deck that can realistically play like all sorts of different lands naturally, but it just sounds like you need to have eight or nine lands before this starts working. And just right. Like, it is about to feel tapped. That's just too painful. I don't think so. <laughs> so Lotus, let's think about Lotus Field. So only it comes into play tapped. So you're only giving up one mana the turn you play it. You have to have two lands to sacrifice. In exchange for that, you have a land that produces mana of any color, so it fixes your mana. Maybe it fixes your mana, and you can potentially untap a specific land. Uh, if you have things that do that. Like, I don't know, Teferi. Ugh. 
Yeah. So there's that. But in Teferi untapped four mana instead of two mana. <laughs> how much life how much has life changed? Weren't you just winning Teferi, anyway? Teferi untaps this and uh Escanta land. <laughs> I mean again, like weren't you just winning the game anyway? Uh, right? Yeah. Like do I really wanna like make my life weirder by playing this card? <laughs> um Yeah. I'm I'm not seeing it right now because also like a lot of these decks that wanted mana fixing also wanted to play something on three really badly. <laughs> and that's what this card does. Sure. Right? So it just seems like it's awkward. The temples are obviously very good. Um Yeah, Temples and London Mulligan, right? You know, the new the new Mulligan rule uh, moving forward. Oh like God. people's draws are gonna be I mean, maybe maybe we're not fully appreciating how easy it is to cast a Wooly Thoktar on turn three now. I don't think using the London Mulligan to not be mana screwed is a great plan. I realize it's a lot better than not having a plan at all, but yeah. I oh, will... I'm, not, I'm not saying that you're relying solely on that. I'm just saying that maybe maybe the ease of your the demands of your mana base are, you know, lessened. Yeah, I get it. I will say that it... it... It always bothers me when the off the opposite color pairs get a much much better like constructed level sure land cycle and the aligned ones get like no life tapped a known limited cycle that does nothing let's yeah. be honest yeah like it's fine for limited they're good cards for limited I know what they're doing there I'm not I'm not upset that they're there but. It's just not doing the same thing. Sad. Like. So. Yeah. So, anyway, that's a look at some of the uh, the colored cards, multicolored cards in 2020. Uh, Javi, are you going to come to uh, one of the pre-releases? Almost certainly. Yeah? All right. Yeah, I have, I have my pre-release now. I found a great place, so. I am. You're going, you've been going to the Complete Strategist? I gotta defend my title. <laughs> I am uh, two twice in a row winner and soul champion. Uh, I, I like that you have your pack, your your stacks of six packs next to each other on your desk, and they're sort of like, see how long you can keep that streak running. What am I gonna do? Open them. <laughs> what am I gonna do with six packs of constructed cards? It doesn't build anything. Like I just might as well keep them, right? If I'm not gonna draft in person. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the strategist. I will I will uh I've already sort of cleared it uh in the household. So I think I'm gonna be there Saturday morning looking forward to you know, it's always just great fun seeing all the re old regulars, uh people who share our sort of vintage of New York uh magic players going back to, to the nineties playing at neutral ground. So it's it's always a a, a good crowd, a nice mix of new faces and old and old uh, fake faces, and of course Eric Smith. Yeah, that's uh, why that's why I do it, right? right. It's, it's like pretty much like just rock star level three judge who's been doing it forever. Just old school vibe of we're just here to you know do this one more time, like yeah. celebrate that the cards always are, are ever changing. See some see some old friends, and right. it's walkable. Try to uh, try to scrape together enough packs for a draft. 
possibly in the week after. Keep not doing that. I mean, I, <laughs> I've been the only four out tw- twice in a row now, and I've my doctor literally no, I, on my I, I, I've missed the last couple of the strategies, so hopefully I can uh, I can maintain my 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 pack positive uh, relationship with the strategist. Yeah, I, I know I've been you know fortunate in various ways to to have made it. Uh, I felt I felt smarter when I was in the the got to, got to get there first, choose a civic box, and just have a huge <laughs> advantage on everyone than I did in more of a spark. But yeah, I still like ground it out, and you know, I, I left the war of the spark pre release being like so depressed. Like I like yeah, I won, and I, that's cool, but like but planeswalkers. Oh my god, the board states. Oh my God, the board states. Oh yeah, I mean we saw that we saw that still this weekend, right? Like you saw multiple situations where there were six and seven planeswalkers in play. They were the same ones over and over again. So sure. by now we're kind of like, yeah. I mean, look, let's be honest. Narset's a mistake. The fairy three is a mistake. Doesn't mean they need to be banned. Sure. No one's saying that. Yeah. But mistakes were made. Yeah. And I am sad they've taken the lesson that like lots of three mana planeswalkers are the right idea. Into this next set, yeah. Uh, obviously, it's too early to react to to learning, but yeah, like looking back at Narset in particular and Teferi in particular, it's just like, how do you think these are good ideas? Like to print as written, it's just shrug. Yeah, I mean, Teferi is every every bit is uh, the powerhouse. It looked like it was going to be early on. It was very funny. I did. I was at um, an event with Gavin Verhaus in, in uh, at SCG Con, and uh, we decided to do a uh, Winston draft. You know, and he's like, "I'm like, why don't people do more stuff with Winston draft? This is like a really fun format, right? Two players can just like take six packs and use them and play a game, not putting anything out there as V, but six packs, and you can Winston draft." Um, and he's like, yeah, he's like, it just feels like it's a little bit of a bomby format sometimes. And I'm like, oh, you know, that really hasn't been my experience. Like, like sometimes you get the bomb, but the bomb doesn't come in the right place and you can't switch into it and you hate draft. And it, it seems pretty mitigated. And then the first pick off the first pile for me in the draft was Teferi Time Raveler. <laughs> and I never looked back and utterly destroyed him with the card twice and... Won myself a. Uh, it does have to do a lot of bunch work. of really good planes. You have to do a lot of work. Yeah. To play those cards, but yes, it's quite good. Yes. I drafted it three times in quick succession when the set first came out. Had Ooh, lucky results. Eh, I was being passed it a lot, and my opponents didn't play it that often. I don't. It was it was largely obviously a lot of luck involved. Yeah. And I was glad to just have them for constructed to yeah. have to worry about it. But it was when it was my I didn't like announce things so I wasn't. Like publishing anywhere, like it was my definite like this is the most interesting card in the set from my perspective. Sure, by a wide margin. Yeah, yeah, I I, I definitely had it pretty high up in my uh, in my rankings and had early experiences with it. At limited that did nothing to dissuade me from how powerful it was. So got my place out of them pretty early, and have been very happy about that. <laughs> God, what are you looking at? Manifold key. I'm just like which card is this? It's both a key with an extra ability, right? Like oh, it's, well, Voltaic never really saw a lot of play. It's technically not strictly better because it's untapped another target creature. Yeah. Another target artifact as opposed to untapped target artifact. So you can't just do certain infinite combos, I guess. Yeah. But it's like, by the way, target creature can't be blocked this turn is also on this card. 
Which, to be fair, will never ever matter to any deck that wants Voltaic Key. Right? <laughs> so it's probably fine. Sometimes that Master Core has got to get in there for the last couple of points. Well, that the Blight the, the Colossus we might have locked in, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow? What, uh, what, is that, what does it cost to activate that ability? Three. And okay. Top. Okay. All right. So we'll it's see. more like maybe someone will want this someday in some weird world where, like, we both do something. Yeah. So anyway, that yeah. is it for another episode of Top 8 Magic. Uh, Brian David Marshall, my special guest, Hall of Famers V. Moshowitz, and uh, we'll be back, probably not back next week at all, actually. I think it's 4th of July week, um, unless Mike and Zvi get together. I'll be out of town, but maybe we can make Mike and Zvi get together and uh, see if they can work something out. But uh, I'll be gone next week. Uh, see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, later. Later.